tested for and became the youngest journeyman knife maker in the world when I was 15 and then the youngest master bladesmith when I was 19. There's an actual bladesmith behind this, there's a family behind it. Um, we're trying to build it the right way and it's all American made. It's like the guy that you meet at the bar that's just got giant arms, giant muscles, it's just all show. And then you get the farm kid that's super tough and you know, the other guy starts mouthing off to him and just gets worked by the guy that's maybe not quite as impressive looking, you know. Um, and behind you here we've got my anvil. Uh, the, the cool thing about this anvil, this was my grandfather's anvil actually. Uh, he was a farrier in World War II. Uh, he shooed horses for the cavalry for the 10th Mountain Division in the Army. And he was in um, the Alps in France uh, during the war. So when I started making knives as a kid, we went down to the old family ranch and uh, we found his anvil and tongs and whatnot back in the barn. And so I've been using that since I was a kid. And I mean, he died when I was, before I even made knives, I was like eight. So um, I didn't really know him, but it's cool to have, cool to have that piece of history. Welcome to the RNA Outdoors podcast hosted by Lucas Paw. Our purpose is to help educate and inspire within you a renowned passion for the outdoors. So join us as we speak with experts in the industry to share insight and knowledge that helps make hunters and anglers more successful. All right, coming to you from Frenchtown, uh, Montana. We are here at Montana Knife Company, and I uh, got uh, my sidekick bro Harley here, and uh, we're here uh, at the uh, at the shop of Mr. Uh, Josh Smith, who is the owner of the Montana Knife Company. And uh, excited to be here. It's uh, between uh, Christmas and New Year's, so a good time to kind of sit back and, and talk a little bit about uh, the company, talk about hunting, hopefully, and talk about kind of some of the things that uh, Josh has uh, coming down the pike for 2021 so anyway josh want to welcome you to the show thanks for uh, coming on yeah thanks i appreciate you guys coming out here it's yeah. great to have you yeah it's cool uh last time i was in frenchtown i think i told harley it was state golf in uh 2000 at king ranch playing golf so i think oh, that really? was the last time I, we actually drove by the golf course coming in so yeah, yeah. well you we got a net set up you can hit some balls in the knife shop for old time's sake yeah <laughs> harley's probably more interested in doing that than me but yeah <laughs> So anyway, yeah, um, so maybe Josh, just maybe give a little history about you, maybe talk a little about kind of the knife company, the inception, where it started, and I guess kind of where kind of where things are at now. Yeah, sure. No, I, uh, I started making custom knives when I was actually, I got into it back when I was 11 years old. Um, started learning from my Little League baseball coach back then and just kind of took to it pretty serious right off the bat and um, I tested for and became the youngest journeyman knife maker in the world when I was 15 and then the youngest master bladesmith when I was 19 and uh, so I was kind of you know pretty serious into it right off the bat and for years I've I've been doing the custom knife thing and uh, you know quite honestly over the years uh, you know my custom knives are fairly 
kind of high priced and and a bit expensive more kind of collector type stuff and i'm always getting people asking me to build you know a hunting knife for their kid or for themselves or whatever but you know sometimes the price of those even my custom hunting knives are a little bit a little bit high for your average guy for just for use which i totally understand so i've had this dream of having a production knife company that i could also then have my kids help kind of work in and build a family business so um you know why not a pandemic year to choose to start a new business you know (laughs) so um jump out of corporate world and jump into the private sector yeah so actually uh yesterday i actually just kind of quit my job my day job i was a journeyman lineman for local utility here but uh you know i launched montana knife company back in july and uh did a run of a couple hundred knives and got them into a lot of the right people's hands and and um got some good support of people buying those and and uh, then did another run of knives here recently and this summer uh, I also brought on a business partner um, Brandon Horahoe from up in in Kalispell and he's been fantastic because now he's able to take care of all of the he does all the marketing stuff and the social media and he's a phenomenal photographer and he's just got a ton of experience in the part of the world that I don't know about Mm -hmm. so it works great we kind of have our roles and we can stay out of each other's way and he's just been able to take that over and I'm running the knife side and um you know since I brought him on it's just been booming and expanding from there and so uh we we just ran a a run of 500 of our newest model which we call the speed goat uh it's just a really light kind of light fast knife um it's without the sheath it's 1.7 ounces it's a paracord wrapped handle you know it's kind of that answer for that knife that's you know um maybe in that realm of some of these replaceable blade knives you see or maybe a totally skeletonized blade where there's no hand material and then you know you you go up from there and then you get into actually a hunting knife that's maybe a bigger heavier thicker knife that that some guys don't like to carry and i i don't i I feel like when you go on big long hunts and whatnot uh, especially if you're in the back country and you're away from civilization you should have a fixed blade um but i do understand why people want lightweight they don't want it you know being intrusive and uh, we have a really cool sheath design on these where they can clip right onto your pack um right on your chest or whatever and you don't even hardly know it's there or you know a lot of guys will clip them underneath a bino harness um it's totally accessible um but it's out of the way and i mean you literally don't even know it's there Mm -hmm. um but it's still sturdy enough to be able to you know if you had to chop some stuff down or you know cut some firewood or do something with it to survive or or whatever you you can beat on it with a rock or do whatever and it'll actually do some real work um so we're pretty excited and that knife's just boomed we've got another run of 500 of those going and then um you know we're, we're trying to kind of push those out and and uh I, you know these days there's so much so many people are into like the ounce counting stuff you know and uh, you see super light pack and lighter gear and so I, I think it's kind of fitting right in there for people and is that you think probably part of your maybe your your selling point is because there's a lot of knife companies out there right and they all do certain things differently but in terms of a knife that's lighter durable strong i mean is that kind of the niche that you're looking for in that in that kind of that capacity or yeah i think so and i i, I think it's a combination of things that's definitely you know something i've seen a lot over the years when people bring me knives to resharpen is their you know their you know they're struggling to sharpen something but then when they bring it to me it's this big thick blade with a really thick edge and they've either sharpened it a lot and it's sharpened down into just really thick steel or it came thick 
right out of the box and it was more of a pry bar or a curl bar than it was a knife to begin with and then you got a guy with a kind of a half-assed stone that you know is struggling and it's totally understandable where i have to take a belt grinder and maybe three different grip belts before we get it to where it should be so you know these are coming right out of the box thin light um you know really easy to resharpen i'm using ball bearing steel in this it's 52100 steel is the technical term for it and it's uh it's not a stainless steel it's a carbon steel but we're parkerizing them so it kind of leaves a black matte finish uh no glare um you know prevents a lot of the rust and whatnot but that steel you know ball bearings are designed to you know resist wear so mm-hmm. kind of stands the reason they make good knives and and for years in my knife career and you know a lot of other knife makers ball bearing steels steel of choice so um you know there's that and then the other portion i think with montana knife company is just the fact that i think people are tired of buying stuff that's been being made overseas um they've got a real actual person behind it's not a knife company with just some executives of trying to you know make some money on some production thing i mean there's an actual bladesmith behind this there's a family behind it um we're trying to build it the right way and it's all american made and it's it's part of why we don't have a folding knife out actually yet is just trying to figure out how we can construct and build a folding knife and and find the right people to do some of the work we need and have it not be six hundred dollars you know um but we're not going to do something until we can do it all here or we just or we won't do it yeah you know and I guess part of your market, so like you said, you're you're probably not uh, appealing to the guy who's going to buy a twenty nine dollar knife and probably throw it out after the first time. So, but thinking about you know, like you said, it's American made, um, you know, which which obviously has a lot of value because a lot of the stuff we see in the states is is made in China, obviously. But um, you know, thinking about um, kind of your knives and and. Uh, and, uh, you know, kind of, I guess, starting, you said, you know, you started in custom knife building. Now you're kind of doing more of the market stuff. But to leave your day job is a pretty big deal, right, yeah. and to build a company. So was there a shift there that told you that said, hey, I'm ready to leave my corporate day job and, and really make this a passion or a hobby, turn it into a passion? Yeah, I, I really, you know, just here in the last couple of months with the release of these, you know, these last couple of designs, and honestly, just the feedback and the and the amount of knives we've sold in just the last two months, um, e- even quite frankly, we were we were a late, little late releasing the Speed Goat. We wanted to have it, you know, at least di- kind of during hunting season, and uh, we were trying to get some of the sheath stuff right and whatnot, and it kind of delayed. So we actually didn't end up launching these until I think it was like the maybe the 18th of December. So most hunting seasons have ended. Um, most people had already bought their gifts for the year. So we kind of thought that maybe we'd missed maybe, you know, a big, a big release as far as, you know, a a big sale, sale Mm -hmm. day. And quite honestly, it blew our minds how many we sold. We sold more than we had done. I mean, I had to work the next two nights till (laughs) two in the morning to get those knives done, to get them shipped for Christmas. And, and, uh, the people that have been getting them are loving them. So, and it just became apparent to me. You know, I am, even though we're getting a lot of this work kind of done out of house, which we'll probably talk about, some of the stuff isn't happening right here. Um, I am still doing all the finishing process. I'm doing all the sharpening. We're doing all the boxing and shipping here. Um, And I was just finding that I was having to spend so much time, you know, till wee hours in the night to get that all done that I wasn't having time to build the prototypes and the stuff for the future that we need to be working Mm -hmm. on. And we've got some great you know, deals coming with some pretty big name brands that people will know. Um, 
and they're wanting prototypes and they're wanting stuff to happen and I just needed the time to do it. And quite honestly, it's kind of one of those deals where it's like, if you're going to make a company go, there becomes a point where it's like, we either got to forget about it or we need to commit mm-hmm. and it's just time to go. Yeah. You know? Well, like you say, you work all day, come home and try to do this at nights and weekends. It's just probably not enough time to yeah. get that to the yeah. point where you want it to be. So absolutely. And you know, you kind of hit on a little bit, um, you know, as far as like the $29 knife, I mean, definitely, you know, our MKC knives aren't going to be the cheapest knife on the, on the rack. And, you know, maybe down the road, you'll find them in a Cabela's or a, you know, a sportsman's warehouse or something like that. But for right now, they're not there. But if, if they were, they'd probably be one of the more expensive knives on the rack. Um, you know, these knives are between like two and $300, which isn't the cheapest knife out there. Um, but I think people are having more of an appreciation for the American made, the story behind it. And then also the fact that they are, when you see them on that rack, you're going to see also that it's pretty clear. They're better. They're a higher quality. Sure. So you are getting more for what you're paying for. And, uh, you know, and the, the other part of that is, is, you know, people are spending tons of money on gear. You know, people are spending two, $300 on a pair of pants and on a coat you know, they're spending $60 on a beanie hat because it says a certain company name on it, you know, mm-hmm. um, and your gun and your bow and all your stuff and your $50,000 diesel pickup, you know. Um, but then the guy will walk up and he'll he'll only want to spend $25 on a knife. And you might quite literally have to depend on that knife if you're in a in a survival situation, mm-hmm. you know. And I And I... I'm really big on you carrying a knife where it's accessible. I know a lot of guys carry a knife in their pack and whatnot, which is fine, but that's the idea with these light, thin knives that you don't know are there. These sheaths are designed with a retention screw that you can actually adjust the tension. So if you do carry your knife, I carry mine upside down with the handle facing down, um, and it's super tight. It cannot come out of there. But if you're a bow hunter, and we, we do, we hear more and more of, bear encounters or lion encounters and you know i'm not saying you necessarily want to go fight a bear with one of these knives but you know if you're bow hunting and a mountain lion happens to pounce on you it might be your last resort pull a knife out and go to town you know you're not going to knock an arrow you don't have time you know so i think you should have one accessible you know for sure well cool maybe uh one thought we talked about is maybe uh we're here in your shop which i think is super cool which kind of again kind of makes this a little more authentic than than doing it you know at a show or over the phone but maybe we could do is we could just kind of walk through the shop a little bit and maybe kind of walk through kind of just a generalized process on um from the time you know you got a sheet of steel to the time it gets cut to the time it comes back to you it's sharpened kind of just maybe walk us through how that process works yeah absolutely um we can do that and really for the for the the beginning part obviously starts right at the design table you know of of drawing a design up and and you know that's one thing that also i think kind of separates us is it's not just all autocad here i mean you're not going to find a computer in my shop it's hand drawn you know i'm taking scissors and cutting out patterns and then i'm i'm actually tracing that onto steel and making the prototypes and i'll show you some of the equipment i do that with um you know but once that prototype's dialed in then we're you know, we're getting in large sheets of steel that are going to our water jet guy and he's water jetting out all the blanks. And, and I kind of have two different companies going here in the same shop. I got the, the Josh Smith knives, which is the higher end. Everything's custom. Everything's done by me. Um, more of like the art knife type collector edition stuff where I don't water jet any of that or have any of that stuff done out of house. It's all done by me. But 
in the Montana Knife Company, obviously, we're trying to scale up and become a, a big name in the industry, and so we have to be able to do things more on scale. So mm-hmm. um, the water jet guys cutting those blades out, getting them all uh, dialed in for us, and then and then we're sending them off to a heat treater who's heat treating them to our specifications, as, as I'll show you here in a minute, where I have the heat treat process here. I do that with all the prototypes here, and I develop kind of my process and what rock well hardness I want and whatnot. And then he just basically mimics what I'm doing on a mass scale. So, but yeah, we can walk into the okay. grind room if yeah, you want. Yeah, let's do it. So in here, um, I've got a couple belt grinders in here, uh, really nice machines where when I'm doing my prototypes, I can, um, you know, I've got a, I've got a template and, and lines scribed out on a piece of steel and I'll actually grind and cut uh, the steel away um, to where you know we end up with kind of a finished profile. And and then from that point, we're grinding the edge down, um, you know, starting to thin it out and, and kind of start working on getting some edge geometry. But before we actually get that finished geometry, we go into kind of the heat treating process. Um, before we heat treat, you know, I've got the drill press over here where we drill holes. Um, get the handles, you know, the handle holes all drilled. We cut out, I, I skeletonize all my handles. So I cut out, um, you know, chunks of steel out of the center of the handle where it, it's just a waste. Of, it's just weight you don't need to be carrying around. Mm-hmm. And it also gives a place, that skeletonized area underneath the handle scales gives a place for epoxy to live and actually bind. If you have two really flat surfaces and you just squeeze a, a piece of G10 or micarta down onto a flat piece of steel, all your glue pretty much squeezes out. Um, so do you find the, the handle to be pretty ergonomic for holding the knife and then the, having this cut out, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's, that's a big part of like, you know, we've got two different models right now. Our Blackfoot model was our first model and that's a model where we've got G10 and micarta scales and you're holding on to a little bit more, uh, a little bit more heft there, kind of a traditional style, um, uh, you know, and I hand grind all those handles and, and round them all down where um, you're not just getting like a uh, like a CNC, you know, say an angle cut on it. And they're just not going to corner off, but you still have all these sharp edges. Um, you know, I don't think people need to be getting blisters when they're using a knife, especially if you're doing a lot of work. You know, and, we, and we're trying to target a lot of the, the outfitters and the guides and the people who might literally be working on four or five deer in a night, you know, or two or three elk. That's a lot of work. Yeah. You know, for sure. So the the speed goats have a a uh, um, paracord handle on them where they're wrapped, and you know I see a lot of these skeletonized blades that some companies are selling, and there's nothing on them. And there again, if you're going to do much work, if it's just that steel skeletonized part with nothing over it, you're going to be getting some blisters. Where you know the the paracord gives you a little bit of something to hang on to yeah better dexterity know. and especially yeah. when you like you say you're working on animal your hands are bloody the knife gets bloody you know some of these like say the interchangeable blades that have scalpel you know scalpel quality you know blades on i mean they're so sharp i mean they could cut you and you wouldn't even know that it cut you you know yeah. and so absolutely and the and the paracord you know one drawback is you know it'll get bloody or whatever and you can wash it out and get it clean as best as you can but you know we offer free sharpening for life with our knives and I think it's for like 15 bucks or something. If you send it back in to sharpen for like 15 bucks or we'll, we'll rewrap it with a piece of paracord or 
you can just order a piece of paracord right off of our site and we'll send it to you. And we have a wrapping video on how, how to rewrap it yourself. And cool. I mean, really it's simple. You just follow the little deal and you know, maybe next year you want to rewrap it with a green handle, you know, next, you know, the year after it's an orange one or it's kind of cool. You can kind of change up the look of your knife just yeah. for the heck of it. You yeah. Know? So on the sharpening piece, we're looking at two kind of belt sander grinders here. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe just kind of walk us through the process. I'm assuming you use different grits of sandpaper or, or sharpening to sharpen the knives and then kind of, I don't know if you do more honing on one or kind of how that process works. Yeah, if people can kind of picture I've got a wall behind my grinders and I've got probably 10 different grits of belts hanging on the wall for different purposes. And, you know, the really rough ones are obviously for hogging away material when we're actually profiling blades. For, but for the sharpening, I'll put on a 120 grit belt and... And I'll, uh, I'll just kind of establish the angle um, and get kind of get through, you know, the blade at that point is about 10 thousandths thick at the edge. And so if you were to go to a stone, you could get that sharp, but it would just take you a while. Sure. That 120 grit belt, I can literally take one pass on each side. I've set an angle. I've now got an edge that's somewhat sharp, but it's too rough at that point. Um, that belt will then get changed out to a like a 60 micron belt which is like the equivalent of somewhere around 400 grit and i'll put a final edge on it with that belt and then i actually go if you've seen guys you know a lot of times with uh you know razor blades or even knives and whatnot people will leather strop them i've got a leather belt that can run on my grinder real slow and I'll run that backwards on that blade where it runs down across that edge and it just puts a light strop on that edge and it just kind of really aligns the um, you know, if you look under a microscope, that edge will actually almost look like a saw. You'll have little teeth. And when it comes off the belt, some of those little teeth might be kind of laid over one way or another. That leather, that leather belt will kind of take off some of that loose stuff that's on there. And we're talking on a pretty microscopic level. And then it'll kind of align everything else. And I, I actually am not putting on an edge that's really super, super smooth like you might have in maybe a chef's knife. You know, for a hunting knife in general... I would actually prefer under a microscope for that edge to kind of look like a saw. When you're going through meat and hair and stuff, you want that mm-hmm. edge to rip. A really highly polished, say, razor blade type edge that you might shave your face with is just going to kind of slide right across the top of hair. Um, hair's rough on an edge, mm-hmm. and and it can really kill it. Now, if you've got all those little micro teeth, it's an edge that as you run your fingers down that edge, it almost feels like it wants to bite you. Um, but it may not actually be the most impressive hair shaving edge on your arm. Um, it's kind of interesting. It might not necessarily want to shave crazy good, but it'll want to bite in and cut your skin. You know, so it's kind of... So it's, what do you want it to do, right? Yeah, I mean, and that's yeah. what I'm looking for. You know, I can make a... I can sharpen one of these blades to just absolutely peel hair off like crazy, you know, just shaving. Um, but... I would prefer it be more impressive out in the field. And that's, that's part of where that, that, that wear resistance with that 5200 steel, those teeth, the reason an, an edge like that gets dull is those teeth start to wear off, right? And they get kind of smoothed off and you get this smooth edge. I want those teeth to hang on there. Well, you get kind of a nice sized tooth to that edge and you get that wear resistance of that steel and that tooth hangs on there for a long time and just keeps ripping and keeps ripping. Gotcha you know yeah so, that's where you i think you get with some of those replacement blade knives too you get it seems to be like you're you're scalping right over the top of hair you're not getting like the the true grip and rip right. i guess out of a, a knife like you're talking about 
It's like the guy that you meet at the bar that's just got giant arms, giant muscles. It's just all show. And then you get the farm kid that's super tough and, you know, the other guy starts mouthing off to him. He just gets worked by the guy that's maybe not quite as impressive looking, you know, that a lot of those replaceable blades are kind of an impressive look when you shave with them. Um, but I think they do tend sometimes to lose their edge pretty fast. They yeah. just don't have that tooth to them, you know. You talked a little bit about angle. So what I'm seeing here is I don't see any preset angles on anything, which tells me you're probably doing a lot of this by hand, which a lot of your sharpeners now come at the 15-degree, 10-degree, 8-degree edge. So you're doing all right. this by hand then. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's understandable that a lot of people would kind of need training wheels on that kind of stuff because how much are you really doing sharpening throughout the year? I mean, you know, obviously your hunting season's a couple months long. Some people's hunting season's a week or two long. Sure. You know, they're not sharpening knives all year. Um, you know, with Montana Knife Company, I'm doing hundreds and hundreds of knives. So um, I definitely don't need the angle guides, but but um, that is a good question. And, you know, a lot of people ask me about the angles, um, you know, and we're usually in that like 15 to 20 degree angle range. Um, and And like I say, our edges are super, super thin. So... Um, I actually prefer more like that 15 and, and there's just not much drag. I mean, that edge is just passing through stuff really super smooth. So that's kind of the angle range that we're looking at. Okay. For the normal layman guy who wants to go out and buy a stone to sharpen one of your knives, what would you recommend? You know, we've got, we're a dealer, some work sharp sharpeners. We've got them on our, uh, our website and we've got kind of a range on there from, you know, kind of cheap little pocket sharpeners that are maybe decent for just a quick little touch up, which would be fine for our knives for just, um, you know, maybe in the middle of an elk or something for a quick little deal. And a lot of that's just getting grime and gunk off the edge and just kind of touching it up, mm -hmm. um, on up to some of those sharpeners that are more of a bench stone, um, outside. And I'm not, you know, there's other great stones just cause we're a dealer of that. It's not like I'm not going to mention others, you know, a lot of the DMT stones that are like a, a diamond stone are fantastic, you know, mm -hmm. and depending on the size of your knives, especially if you get into kitchen knives or, or larger camp knives or something, some of those stones can get kind of short. So, you know, a nice eight inch long diamond DMT stone and there's different grits, you know, and I, I suggest to people to have you know, a rougher one and then down into the finer grits. Cause you, you may have an edge that needs that, that angle and some of that edge reestablished. It's like my 120 grit belt where I, I establish that angle and then I go to a finer belt. Same thing on a stone. Um, when I, when I resharpen with a stone, I might be on a, you know, a really rough side of that stone in the beginning. Cause you're removing steel when you're sharpening, mm -hmm. you know, so. Cool. Yeah. All right. Maybe we'll walk through and head out to your, I guess, the other part of your uh, your shop here. Yeah, as we go along here in in this next section, my shop's kind of divided up into rooms. Um, this next section is kind of like the size of a, like a two-car garage, and it's really where we kind of do our shipping, our packaging. I've got finished. It's kind of my clean room. I've got a wood stove in here that kind of heats the whole shop. Um I've got knives all laid out on a bench that are not sharpened, and then I've got some knives on a bench that are sharpened. We had a bunch more on this bench that uh, that were sharp yesterday, but my wife's actually in the middle of uh, packaging those up in the house right now, finishing the, the labels. But that's kind of how we organize things. That way I kind of know what's done. Once I sharpen them, they go onto the next bench. I get the sheath adjusted. I'll show you here. We've got uh, a sheath sitting here. 
um, and it's got this retention screw right in here and I know people uh, you know people obviously can't see this but there's a screw kind of right right at the bottom side mm -hmm. of the handle by the clip and it's really cool because it's got a rubber grommet in the middle of that sheath and so you know I've, I've handed these knives to some people who literally could not get the sheath or the knife out of the sheath so obviously we back that screw off for them so that tight that basically tightens the tension of the knife inside the, the yes sheath there. it does it keeps it in there nice and snug and and uh, sometimes people get a little wild pulling them out because once that releases, you know, they jerk out and they sure. tend to want to stab themselves. So, you know, there's kind of a fine line for different people. Um, for me, I'm going to want that thing screwed down a little bit more, smashing that rubber grommet a little bit more and uh, and making sure that that retention is really good. Because I'm carrying my knife exposed, I'm carrying it right on my chest upside down. Um, but again, you can pop that thing out you know pretty easy by using your thumb and pulling on it when you put it back in it's got a click and in the microphone you can probably actually hear when i'm pushing this thing in here it's actually snapping into place and that that knife that knife cannot i mean you couldn't shake that out of there if you wanted to um and there again that's there there's actually a fair amount of retention left to screw down here um, as this knife, maybe as the sheath, maybe, uh, if it sits in the sun and the, say the, you know, dash of your car or something in the, mm -hmm. and the Kydex maybe, uh, gives just a little bit, you can just keep screwing that down and it'll, and it'll snug that knife down even more. So, um, and I should say that people can't see them. They are Kydex sheaths. We have a really cool belt clip that we think is really neat that, you know, I don't, I don't see, think you see on very many knives. Um, this belt clip actually clips over the top of your belt without you taking the belt off. It kind of curls. You can slide it down. It pops over the belt. I see that, yeah. And then you can take that knife back off of your belt, again, without unclipping your belt. And the other nice thing with that is you can click it right over the strap of your pack. And then when you're all said and done, if you want, you can unclip it from your pack. Or let's say you've shot something, you've taken your pack off, it's sitting over in the bushes. You unclip that off of your pack. And you can go over to the animal and do what you want, stick it back in the sheath. And, the, you know, the other great thing about the Kydex, obviously, compared to leather, you know, leather's the old school. I love the look of leather. It's awesome, but it gets wet, it stretches, you know, it holds yeah. stuff. You can stick this sheath in the dishwasher when you get home, clean it out or soak it in water or whatever. Yeah, they're durable, they're light, which yeah. kind of adds to that kind of light theme and that exactly. you're going for with the knife, too, so... And we've tried to kind of think of everything. I mean, this this clip can also just two screws come out of it. It can turn ninety degrees. So, you know, you can you can decide to have the option if you want to remount it ninety you know ninety degrees where you can now carry that knife horizontal or vertical on your belt. Same thing on your pack strap. Um, th th with the way that clip is, you can literally like when I was fishing last summer on our drift boat. I just clipped it right over the plastic. Uh, there was like a plastic liner piece. I don't even know what it was to really, but it was right there next to me. I just clipped it over to that, and it had it was right on the boat right next to me. Or if you're on a raft, you could clip it over a rope or anything and just have it available to where once you need it, you just reach over and pull out of the Pop sheath out, and use yeah. it. Clips on your visor of your truck. You know, I've got a, a rancher friend that carries it right on his visor, and when he's popping bale strings, he just reaches up on the visor and grabs it, you know throws it on his belt and then he takes it back off and leaves it in his truck. So 
you know, it's just different uh, different ways you can do stuff with it, you know. So, so with other prototypes of knives that you're coming out with, you'll uh, redesign the sheath. I take it for those types of knives as well, or yeah, we will. And and quite honestly, like the Blackfoot that'll be coming out in February again when we're when we're restocked on those models, it'll have pretty much the same uh, all set up on the sheath. It'll just be molded for that blade. And same thing really with knives in the future. Until we see that there's a reason that we need to change something, um, at, you know, because we've already changed from the first time we had our Blackfoots out this fall to now we've changed our, our sheaths up quite a bit and, and upgraded them a lot. So, you know, if somebody comes to us with an idea or a, maybe a different sheath vendor has a better idea, like we're not we're not married to any of the ideas we have. I mean, we just want to have the best thing possible, right. you know. All your fixed blades come with a Kydex sheath then? Is that they pretty do. standard? Okay. Yeah. Yep, they do. Cool. So very cool. Yeah. Okay. Maybe we can work into more of your. I would maybe call it more of your custom shop then, where you do more of your custom work and. Yeah, some we of the, walk more of the over. Forging and walk over into this next room. This pretty good size room here. Um, it's got tall ceilings, and I don't know if people will be able to tell in the microphone. It's a little more echoey in here, just from the size of the of the room. Um, but in this room, I've got. Uh, kind of a forging setup for my custom stuff. I've got a, a forge here that that I can light, and uh, it would actually be kind of fun. We might be able to light it. They might be able to hear the rumble on the mics, but I've got a forge that when I light this thing, it'll be 2,000 degrees in five minutes, wow. maybe seven minutes. Um, I mean, it gets really hot really fast, and I can put a big piece of steel in there, or a, a billet of steel. Um, excuse me, I make uh, Damascus steel, and it's layers and layers of steel that I forge together. And so I'll put a bar of steel in there that might weigh, you know, seven, eight, nine pounds. And I'll heat that up to 2,400 degrees. And when I come out of there, I come over into, into a machine here that's called a hydraulic press. And I'll squeeze that steel down and I'll draw that steel out. And when you squeeze all those layers at that temperature, all those layers forge weld to each other. And they become a solid bar of steel. And... Uh, you know, that was a technique, you know, some people might kind of think about like the samurai swords back in the day, they would fold that steel over and fold it over and they'd keep hammering on it. You know, and back, back then they actually thought that the more they folded it, the stronger they got. Um, that's kind of some folklore and some myth. I mean, we figured out later on with metallurgy that it's really still just the same steel. Um, but it made really cool lines and layers and whatnot and you get a lot of really neat designs, which is neat. So. Um, Damascus isn't necessarily better steel. It's just cool. It's pretty. It's yeah, cool. yeah, it looks, looks cool. neat. Yeah. yeah, and the process, when you see it made, you can see why people, you know, they want to pay for it. Um, I've got a rolling mill here that you'll see in very, very few shops. Uh, a machinist built it for me. It's an incredible machine. I can roll steel through it, and it, it, helps, me, it helps me thin the steel out. Um, I, I roll it out, it makes it really long and it makes it really smooth so I can work down to tighter tolerances and have less waste. Um, and it, when my steel comes through there, it actually looks more like maybe what you'd see coming out of a mill, um, even though it's, it's kind of hand forged steel. Okay. Um, and behind you here, we've got my anvil. Uh, the, the cool thing about this anvil, this was my grandfather's anvil actually. Uh, he was a farrier in World War II. Uh, he shoot horses for the cavalry for the 10th Mountain Division in the Army. And he was in um, the Alps in France uh, during the war, taking care of the horses. 
Um, so when I started making knives as a kid, we went down to the old family ranch and uh, we found his anvil and tongs and whatnot back in the barn. And so wow. I've been using that since I was a kid. And I mean, he died when I was, before I even made knives, I was like eight. So gotcha. um, I didn't really know him, but it's cool to have, cool to have that piece of history. So like the process, so you'd put the steel in the forge and then you said you'd kind of mill it out and then maybe roll it. At what point does it get on the anvil or is it when it comes out of the actual forge? Are you hammering at that point or? Yeah. So once I've, once I've made that Damascus and I've worked that down into a bar of steel that's workable, that maybe I'm now ready to turn into a blade. Maybe it's an inch or inch and a half wide and, you know, say a quarter inch thick or something like that. And I actually want to start forging and hand hammering the shape of the blade there's a couple reasons for that. One, you know, you save a lot of steel. If I just cut that steel all the way and grind it all the way, now I've got really nice steel that I spent all this time making that I'm turning into dust. Um, if I hand hammer it and hand forge it, I stretch that steel out, I force it where I want it to go, and I turn it into a shape. And so now maybe a bar of steel that I could only grind one knife out of, I might get, you know, two knives out of. Um, and the other the other reason for that is is you, you know you can actually see in the Damascus if you kind of know what you're looking at that you didn't the guy didn't just cut across the lines but he actually you can see the lines kind of smash into each other as you forge that tip down it smashes those lines in and you can actually see that 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 knife was actually hand forged so um, you just don't see a lot of I just you think back and. I would say the older times of blacksmiths and folks using anvils and, you know, forging and, and pressing steel, you just, it's kind of a lost art anymore, you it, know? Yeah. And, and, you know, it was really a lost art until like the late seventies. And, uh, I'm actually starting a podcast. And part of the reason I'm starting a podcast is I'm, there's some old guys that really kind of rebirthed a lot of this stuff back in the seventies and quite, quite honestly, they're, they're old and they're, they're not going to be with us very much longer. And, I actually want to kind of interview some of those guys from the knife making and knife maker perspective about like what it was like back then. Cause it's literally sure. like the beginning again. Um, nowadays with forged and fire on TV, TV show on, uh, the history channel, you know, we're seeing actually kind of an explosion into the knife making in the knife world. And I, I was on that show a couple times and as a knife maker now i I get, emails weekly about people asking about getting into it and, sure. and wanting to, you know, maybe help their kid get into it. Their kid might be watching it and help, how do they get started? So, um, you know, you're right. It's not something you see a lot of, but it's definitely like we're kind of in that time period right now where it's exploding. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a cool, it's definitely a cool craft and especially, you know, I think one of the neatest things about it is just that sense of accomplishment um, that you made something with your hands. It wasn't cranked out by a machine. Um, it's pretty hard work. I mean, you do a lot of hammering, you're going to get blisters and you're going to sweat and sure. until you learn how to do it properly, like anything, once you learn the proper technique, it gets easier. But yeah. Very cool. I've got a neat, uh, a, a hammer over here. This is called a trip hammer. It's a little giant trip hammer. Um, and it's just kind of cool to show. I'm actually in the process of refurbishing it right now. I've, it's uh, got a couple more parts to go, and it'll be back together. I built a motor mount and mounted a motor to it. This machine probably hasn't run in at least 80 or 90 years. It was made back in 1910. It's got a serial number on it, and that company tracked all their serial numbers, so they actually know, you know, within a couple of years of when that machine was built. Huh. Wow. Um, 
they were made and, and used a lot in farms and, and whatnot back in the Midwest and down in the South. Uh, it's got a great big, huge um, kind of pulley wheel on top of it, and they would run a big, long flat belt to the PTO on their tractor. So they'd drive their tractor up next to it, park, run their belt on it, and the tractor would sit there and run and drive the hammer, and they'd step on this pedal, and this thing just goes up and down, and it beats on the steel. And uh, wow. they'd make plowshares, and, you know, you know, town blacksmiths would make basically everything that people needed yeah. was blacksmith implements or whatever. Yep. So, um, wow. I'll, I'll definitely be using it in the knife making, but quite frankly, I really got it just because, um, cause it's cool. Such a cool piece. Yeah. And I'd assume serial numbers got to be low. I can't imagine there's a lot of these floating around. Yeah, there's not. And I don't know, it's covered up right now, but there's not. Yeah, there's not. I mean, they made, they made hundreds of them, but it's not definitely you don't not see this every tens day. and tens of thousands. No. Yeah. And, you know, you just think about, you know, to me, it's always amazing when you see stuff like that. And how did they make that stuff back in 1910? You know, over over here in the corner, I've got a similar thing, this gray piece of machinery. It's called a surface grinder uh, sitting back there. And that actually came off of a U.S. battleship, um, naval ship. And it's got a naval tag on it and whatnot. And it's it's got wheels and... uh, it's actually got a great big magnet on it and it it just goes that whole table goes back and forth and the grinding head goes up and down and that grinding head i can adjust a half a thousandths at a time so it grinds steel flat but what's cool about it is you know the time period it was made like like they had to just about hand make all of that stuff they didn't even have the tools to do that stuff back then or you know there was no computer controlled it was all designed on a piece of paper none of that stuff yeah yeah um and, you know, really, you can pick that, that kind of equipment up fairly cheap now because industry has moved to more CNC. So, you know, for a guy like me, that I can, I can grind any piece of steel I need to within a thousandth of an inch. That's, you know, I'm not, I'm not making space shuttles. That's fantastic for me, yeah. you know. Um, so uh, some of that kind of stuff, I, I've got a combination of some of the new where I've got an oven that can heat up to 2,500 degrees and, you know, five ten minutes and i can hold a temperature in this heat treating oven to within a couple degrees for hours and i can it's computerized i can set how fast i want it to cool down over how many hours the whole nine yards so i got a kind of a combination of of old and new in here which is cool and the treating process i mean that's a key part of the knife making piece too right i mean ensuring that you know a lot of times you'll see the the steel come out forge go into a bucket of water i mean that whole process is key to making sure that steel's strong right yeah it's the engine of the knife i mean it's like otherwise it'd be like having a corvette with no engine you know i mean it can be pretty but it's not going to work and Mm -hmm. and that's where the heat treat is everything and you can even use the right steel and heat treat it wrong and mess it up you know so um or it can be a really ugly ass knife that some guy makes in his back garage and if he's heat treating it right it's going to work great sure you know so the heat treat really is everything um you know if if it's not heat treated right then the rest just really doesn't matter Mm -hmm. you know and it's cool in here it's a good size shop we shoot our um i shoot my bow in here Uh, i can shoot about 20 yards in here if i stand back in that back room i can get maybe 25 and then you know when it's nice out i open up the door and we shoot our, shoot our bows outside, yeah. Kind of cool. When if it's dark, I can stand outside and shoot inside. <laughs> so That's cool. Yeah. 
Yeah, so living in southwest Montana, Missoula, maybe talk a little about hunting. What are some species and what are some kind of your favorite times of year to go out and do some hunting? Yeah, I mean, I love, obviously, I love archery hunting. I love elk hunting, um, you know, deer hunting and stuff. With with launching the knife company this year and having a full-time job, and we were talking about how much I was working at night and stuff, I didn't, I didn't hunt as much as I wanted to this year, but... Uh, when I was elk hunting with my bow this fall, um, I did see a bunch of bears one day and I had my boy with me. So a week later when rifle season was open, I took him up there with my business partner. And, um, again, we went elk hunting, but this time he packed his rifle, my 12 year old. And sure enough, right at daylight, he spotted a really nice bear and he was across, way across the Canyon. We had to drop clear down into the Creek bottom and it was raining and soaking wet. And we, we went to the bottom and kind of crawled back up out of there and got back to the top on the other side. And sure enough, he spotted him again. And, uh, you know what it's like trying to get a boy or a kid set up on something with a scope. I think we Mm -hmm. had to stalk that bear three times, you know, before I finally, we finally got him set up to where he could find him in the scope and he was comfortable. And I mean, he was only probably 80 yards from us, but Hank made a couple great shots and killed a really nice bear. Um, in fact, we just got the skull back from the taxidermist and the, the rug will be probably another year, but cool. that was a fantastic hunt. We, I mean, and it was a legit, you know, a lot of times bear hunting, you can kind of sit and spot and, and, uh, they can be, maybe be not quite such physically demanding hunts, but this one was definitely tough. And, and then he had to pack it out. He had a 65 pound pack coming out and. We had to hike up out of there and get to the top and it's the whole experience right yeah so he was it was about a six and a half mile you know hike and he did fantastic so that was really the highlight of the season at least to begin with and then there again i didn't shoot anything this year but then we went deer hunting over in eastern montana and all three of my my kids i've got two high school daughters and then hank again they all shot you know pretty nice mule deer bucks so honestly i'm kind of at that stage in life i mean yeah i like shooting stuff but if my kids can shoot stuff yeah i'm, I'm pretty happy yeah. you know now so. there's definitely that that sense of accomplishment i mean one being behind the trigger behind the scope but seeing someone else do it you know sometimes is just as for me with this year we took harley's boys out and they've shot their first bucks this year so yeah just yeah. being there for that experience i think is you know for me you know more exhilarating than being behind the trigger you know oh 100 and, and watching them you know, like with that bear, um, and there, I've got video of it on my Instagram. It's, it's awesome. But I mean, he stayed super calm. He did everything he needed to do. We, we kept making our pursuit. He kept staying calm. He made the right shots. And then when I finally said, you know, that bear finally, you know, started rolling around and was done. I looked at him and gave him a fist pump and I was like, you did it. And then he immediately went into just full body shakes. I mean, his uncontrollable, his leg was shaking and he was just like, couldn't hardly stand, you know, literally. (laughs) And, um, but it's just cool to watch your kids, you know, stay composed and do what they're supposed to do and not, and not lose it. You know, you, you get a lot of pride out of that. And same with my girls. I mean, they've always done really great. You know, and then once once the job's done, then it's time to get excited. But, yep. Yeah. Then the knives know. come out, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then the work starts. Exactly. Actually, for funny story about that, I uh, when we shot one of the mule deer, um, my my daughter Sadie's same thing with her. She had we had to pack it out, and my my rule is is if you shoot the animal, you have to have the heaviest pack. 
So we're packing okay. out and she, she had a pretty heavy pack cause we, we actually, you know, quartered that deer up and we were two and a half miles or so from the truck out in the breaks and it was pretty rough country up and down and it's kind of muddy and slick. And yeah. so she did fantastic job. We were packing it out and we stopped to take a break for a minute, took the packs off. And of course my boy and my other daughter had a tag and we're looking over some really nice deer country in this bottom and, um, and I had brought a, you know, a set to rattle, rattle, a little rattling set, you know, and Hank asked me, he's like, dad, why don't you try rattling? And I was like, I mean, I haven't really rattled much for mule deer, but I'm like, yeah, on the rut. I mean, you yeah. Know, so I was like, can't hurt. We, we had been glassing this country for the last 10 minutes, sitting still just looking. And I had looked it over hard with my, my binos. And so I'm like, all right, well, whatever, you know, just do it for the kids, you know? So he hands me the rattles out of my pack and I rattle for 15 seconds and a buck, buck walks out 230 yards. He walks right out on the hillside, right in front of us. <laughs> so we got Hank all set up and Hank shot him. Hammer made a great time. shot. Yeah. That's cool. So then it was like, holy crap. Now we got to get to work. So then we had to, hu- we hustled Sadie's deer to the truck and luckily his deer was only probably a half a mile, but we got back to his deer and, uh, we actually just cut it in half and we, two of us on each half and we got it out well we got there and i was cutting the legs off kind of trimming things up a bit and i was in a hurry and doing my thing with the knife and had hank holding the leg and i'm trying to cut through the one joint and it went great just slipped it right off and then the next one i was i think my edge was hung up a little bit on some cartilage and i kind of got after it a little bit and i i mean it was slow motion right as i did it i came through and i just went right across the top of his hand and he jerked back and i was immediately i'm like let me see it yeah and he sticks it out and it's just filleted so i was like we immediately just put a bunch of pressure on it wrapped it up in electrical tape and i had some like clotting gauze in my pack and wrapped it up well we're we're 60 miles from Jordan in the middle of nowhere. And so no cell phone service. And I didn't even know if they had a doctor there to do, I knew it needed stitches. So we actually stopped at a farmhouse and they said, Oh yeah, there's a doctor there. We'll, we'll call him for you and he'll be ready when you get there. So we, Oh, nice. The town got him, oh, boy. got him some stitches in his hunting clothes, and uh, and then headed back to the camper and cooked. And but he, as he said on the way uh, on the way to the hospital, he's like, it was his trigger hand and finger. And he's like, well, at least I already shot my deer, Dad. I don't need that finger. <laughs> <laughs> he was thinking, so, yeah. So he he hiked around and uh, wow. ended up watching my, his sister shoot a deer uh, the next day and kind of helped. But he had a big club on his hand wrapped up. So. I think we've all had that experience, right? Trimming, yeah. cutting. I mean, I've seen, I've cut my leg, cutting across. I mean, I've cut my hands multiple times. It's, and it brings up a good point. I mean, having at least some basic first aid, right? Cause I mean, yeah. these knives are designed to, it doesn't matter what it is. It's going to cut through it, you know? So it, it just, again, it kind of just sends home that message that it's important to have first aid material. If you, you know, especially if you're by yourself, you know? Absolutely. And, and I, I, it was a great lesson for the kids. Cause I told them, I said, if that would have been Sadie's deer, you know, two and a half miles back. I mean, you know, you don't, I mean, we were luckily kind of at the truck, but I, I got all that stuff out of my pack. I had it with me and, yeah. you know, some, some clotting gauze and stuff that you can lease stuff on something and some tape. And, um, and quite honestly, like the, the paracord, not to, you know, try to toot our own horn, but the paracord on that speed goat knife. I mean, that's something we've told people you could, you could tear that paracord off that knife and make it a, into a tourniquet. tourniquet in a hurry, if you had to, yeah. You know, so um 
No, it's things to think about and definitely yeah. having that stuff available. But I, I definitely got a lot of shit from my friends about <laughs> cutting my own kid uh, with a knife, you know, knife yeah. maker. Chops yeah, his own kid. Yep. But well, cool. <clears throat> this has been uh, this has been really neat. Um, maybe just you were saying so you got a line coming out in February. So is that additional models? Um, that's kind of a that's the Blackfoot again. Um, but we've made a few changes to it. New sheath design. Um, you know, it really is going to kind of look the same to the customers, a little different screws and stuff, but I mean, it's pretty much the same knife. Um, but I am working on some prototypes right now and I had asked people to kind of bear with us, but I'm hoping by spring, uh, we're actually going into some chef's knife stuff, which is going to be really cool. Uh, it gives a great excuse for a guy to buy a knife and give it to your wife, even though maybe you're the one that wants to use it, you know, so do some cooking, but uh, we're coming out with some chef's knives. We're gonna, we're also developing like uh, larger skinning and some caping knives. Um, there's a lot of really cool stuff. We just uh, got some new hats and shirts in on our site. And actually, I'll give you guys some. We've got uh, got some coffee and actually a spice where it's with our our company and uh, it's got a really cool sketch drawing of me forging at the forge and stuff. And it's a forged fire salt. Um, that we actually just cooked on some steaks last night and it's actually really good. Well, that's so, cool. Cool. Yeah. Nice. We're kind of doing different stuff like that, but, um, you know, we're a small, we're small and we're, but we're growing really fast and we're having obviously the growing pains that some people have where, you know, it's like, we kind of ventured into it like, well, we'll see how this goes. And then all of a sudden we're seeing like, holy cow, we need to go after it. Cause yeah. we're getting quite the demand, but hopefully by next you know, fall, we've got two or three more models of actual like hunting style knives and cool. Um, just keep building. Yeah. And so if someone was to want to get a hold of one of your knives, what's kind of the best way for them online or give you a call or how do you kind of do your procurement and all that? Yeah. And we do everything from here. And that's one thing we were talking about earlier. And I said, some of the stuff we ship out, you know, like, you know, water jet or heat treat or, but you know, just as a reminder, everything we're doing is in the U S American made. I mean, that's our big thing. If we can't do it, we're not going to, but we do all that shipping and whatnot. Uh, the website is Montana knife company.com. Um, I have my own personal stuff for my customs, Josh And then same thing on the Instagram, we're at Montana knife company and Josh Smith knives. So cool. It's pretty, pretty simple. So cool. Yeah. HP, what do you think? Pretty good. Can't wait for another knife to come out. Have to get me one. Yeah, no, I love it, and I just appreciate appreciate the support and appreciate you guys yeah. coming out. And yeah, yeah. Um, well, we appreciate a Montana-made, American-made company that's you know, like you say, turning around good, durable products in the hunting industry. I think I wouldn't say it's something that the industry is lacking. It's just you know, like you say people spend thousands of dollars on all this equipment and the last thing they think about is a good knife when at the end of the day it's you know probably one of the most integral pieces in your pack that you need right yeah, so for sure being that it's american made and and especially made here in montana sure makes it pretty special so yeah well i cool. appreciate that yeah, yeah. and being so. a small business too i mean i got a small business as well and man i understand the growing pains of a small business but you know as you pick up clients things get bigger and you know the demand becomes bigger as well but I just tell the audience definitely take a look at you guys on Instagram. I've been following you guys; pretty cool stuff. Yeah, my my business partner is actually just he's really a magician with the camera, and he's he's really an extreme. He does, you know, ice climbing and rock climbing. And he does all kinds of cool stuff. So even just following the Instagram just to see cool pictures is is worth it right there. Yeah. And and, uh, and really, honestly, we haven't spent a dime in advertising. I mean, we want to grow it kind of 
grassroots through people if it's a good product people will share it and yeah, yeah. the people that have been doing that we really appreciate well i think word of mouth in this industry's i mean it's reputations everything but if your product you know stands behind itself you shouldn't need to market it as much as you need to right, right. people talk about it people know it people know the product they want it right exactly so yeah. well, i'll say it's cool to hear a good story in 2020 this has been a pretty neat story to hear your successes and clearly if you're you're leaving the like say you're kind of your day corporate job to yeah. to take on this that's a that's pretty neat especially in a like you say in a year where a lot of uncertainty just a lot of craziness in one year but it sounds like 2021 yeah. is going to be pretty exciting for you so yeah i sure think so so looking forward to it well good deal well i guess uh we'll sign off here from frenchtown appreciate uh josh having us here in his shop and uh yeah happy new year guys yeah happy yeah, new year thanks. To you. same to you yeah. all right thanks take all care right. guys thanks hey everyone this is lucas paw host of the rna outdoors podcast Please check out Podbean and iTunes. If you have an iPhone or iPad, go to the podcast app on your device, search for RNA Outdoors, and hit the purple subscribe button. When doing this, it will automatically upload when new podcasts are loaded and they will download into your queue. For Android users, you can access the podcast through Podbean, Stitcher, or use our website, www.rnaoutdoors.com forward slash podcast. In addition, under the RNA Outdoors podcast channel, please leave a review and a five-star rating. These reviews help boost our popularity and outreach. You can also follow us on our social media outlets, Twitter at RNA Outdoors, Facebook, RNA Outdoors, and Instagram, Rod and Arrow Outdoors. All links are in the show notes as well. If you like what you've heard, we hope you'll pass along our channel to your friends and colleagues. Keep up the good fight. We cannot sit by and watch the public lands devoted to wildlife protection wither away. There's simply too much at stake. Make your voice heard, speak up, and get involved with conservation efforts. And know that every little bit helps. As we say on the mountain, go farther, stay longer. <laughs>